Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship this morning. That was beautiful. Um, sometimes your heart just needs to be reminded of where God is and who Jesus is supposed to be and something about singing it out. Doesn't it sort of just reorder it in your heart and in your mind? You're like, oh, man, yeah, I forgot, or I started shifting this week, or things are starting to move in my life, and when I sing it out or I listen to the church sing it out around me, because sometimes you can't even sing it just reorders it. At least that's how it works for me. And so to be together and to sing together is so huge, especially after a season of singing in my living room. Um, and I don't sound nearly as good as Amy Penn, so that's painful for me and my kids. So at any rate, my name is Dave. Uh, I'm not a singer, but I am one of the pastors here. And today we're continuing our series that we've been in called Unlikely. And we're looking in this series about how time and time and time and time and time again... God chooses to use people who are implausible to do his work, people that you would not expect to do his kingdom work in this world. And so today we're looking at one of my favorite characters in scripture, and I say that a little hesitantly because Samson is not a typical like favorite character. He honestly sort of blurs the lines between villain and hero. Remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about Deborah and JL and then Sisera, and it was like the good girls and the bad guy, and the lines are very clear. We all know who the enemy is and who's good, who's bad. Not so today. In fact, when we read this story, there are going to be moments when you will think, is, is our hero today a hero or is he a villain? I don't know. And it's one of the reasons why I love Samson. Because sometimes we are tempted, I am tempted to read the Bible and to think about people that God uses and to sort of put people up on a pedestal. And so we have these heroes that are just amazing God people that are just phenomenal and wonderful and good in every way. And then there's me. And I know myself well enough to know that I'm not that. So I have to either not be one of those people that can be used by God or I have to convince myself and deceive myself like it says in the New Testament, if you believe you have no sin, you have deceived yourself. I have to deceive myself into thinking I'm one of these people. And yet Samson reminds me, oh, he's a lot like you. And there's good in you and there's Holy Spirit work and there's also fallenness and brokenness. And so I love Samson. And he doesn't seem likely to lead. Um, but one of the things that does make him feel a little bit more like a, a good choice for God is that he was extremely gifted. Samson lived during a time when physical strength was a really big deal, and Samson had physical strength. He could take a wild animal apart with his bare hands. He could defeat multiple men in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He had charisma and leadership and this sort of confidence and fearlessness about him that people were just drawn to. But before we get too far in, I want to say a few words here about Samson's gift and specifically about being gifted. To be gifted is to have a special talent or a unique ability. It's to be naturally very good at something. People can be gifted in a lot of ways. Intellectually, they can be gifted. I'll just sit next to Rick Colson in the front. Rick's pretty smart. He's a smarty pants. He's intellectually gifted. He's probably smarter than you. 
Um, he didn't tell me to say that. And in fact, he's embarrassed now. I apologize, Rick. Okay. You can be intellectually gifted. You can be athletically gifted. You can be gifted with charisma or charm. Some people are gifted with good looks. Pastor Ted Burnett comes to mind. Um, no, I'm serious. Ted, isn't Ted a good-looking man? Anyway, that's another subject. Others have business savvy. They're gifted with that or musical gifts or relational gifts or artistic talent. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? And I want to say this really clearly. To be gifted is not a bad thing. To be gifted is a good thing. In fact, the scriptures say every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God above, right? From our Heavenly Father. This past December, our family went down to the Moda Center and we had seats um, kind of up in the nosebleeds, but there weren't a lot of people, so they moved us down. You ever have that happen to you? Never. I bought 300 level seats and got to sit in 200. I was so pumped because there was a guy there performing by the name of Jim Gaffigan. And I don't know if you know Jim Gaffigan, but, but we know Jim Gaffigan. We love Jim. And Jim is a very, very gifted comedian. He's got some comedy gifts. And friends, I am glad that God has gifted Jim in this way. He brings joy and peace and laughter into my life. So gifts are good. But I would argue this, that in our world, in our culture specifically, we are infatuated with being gifted. We're obsessed with it. We're obsessed with people who are extremely gifted. People like Taylor Swift and LeBron James and Amanda Gorman, the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. Remember her from the inauguration. Or Tom Brady or Oprah Winfrey or Steve Jobs or Bobby Fischer. Because in our world, to be gifted, especially for the younger generation, it means you are special. You are significant. You have value. But if you're not gifted, if you don't have big, bold, amazing gifts, then in our world, you're often seen as a nobody. And our students feel this. You see, in our culture, we're told that being gifted is not just a good thing. It's the main thing. But the Bible offers us a different story. The scriptures say, more important than how gifted you are is the character that you have. More significant than what you can do is who you are. And this is where our hero today starts to blur the lines a little bit. He starts to feel like an unlikely choice for God because Samson is extremely gifted, but he struggles with character. He struggles with choosing God's way when the way of sin is tempting. He struggles with doing the right thing when the wrong thing feels really good to do. You see, giftedness is good, but character, character keeps giftedness in check. Character prevents giftedness from dominating and destroying your life because it's great to be gifted, but with giftedness comes pressure and temptation and a tendency towards entitlement. Have you ever noticed this in our world? And if you don't have character undergirding your gifts, supporting your gifts, your gifts can turn out to literally destroy your life. And this very thing starts to happen in the life of our hero today. Let's read about it. Samson, his story begins in Judges chapter 13, when an angel of the Lord appears to a woman. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? Yeah, an angel of the Lord appears to this woman and tells her this. You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. 
Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, like, like many of the other unlikely characters in Scripture, we see here that Samson comes from relative obscurity. He's not like in the king's court. He doesn't have, like, a, he's not part of some big lineage. In fact, he's born to a barren, nameless woman. And the author writes the story this way on purpose as a way of saying his power does not come from his pedigree. His strength is not connected to his status. Samson's power is rooted very deeply in this idea right here that he is to be a Nazarite. And a Nazarite vowed to live life separate from the world and devoted to God in a special way. And this is where Samson gets his power and his devotion and commitment to God. And a Nazarite vow was actually three things, three simple vows that a Nazarite would take. I'm going to walk you through them. This is part of Numbers chapter 6 where we understand what does it mean to be a Nazarite. Here's what it means. You take three vows. Vow one, a Nazarite must abstain from wine. He's, he's not even to get close to it. In fact, it says he must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. He must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now, it seems kind of like a random vow, but let me explain it to you. In the Old Testament, wine symbolized joy. And I'm going to say that again. In the Bible, wine symbolizes joy. Right, And I think most of us can maybe understand how, why that would be. Um, but in case you can't, let me quote Neil Diamond here. Red, red wine, you make me feel so fine. You keep me rocking all of the time. Red, red wine, you make me feel so grand. I feel a million dollar when I'm just in your hand. Right? I mean, like, so Neil's a theologian here. He's actually sort of reflecting the biblical idea of wine and joy going together. And so then why would, if wine's joy, then why, why the Nazarite vow to still abstain? Here's why. A Nazarite, by abstaining from wine, would be expressing that their ultimate source of joy was in the Lord, not in anything of this world. Right? There's this gift of God, this wine that's offered to you and me for joy. And yet a Nazarite would say, no, I, I don't even need that thing of this world because my joy is 100% in the Lord. That's vow number one, nothing to do with wine. Here's vow two. No razor may be used on his head. That's number six, five. A Nazarite would vow not to cut his hair. My 15-year-old son, Dax, is currently trying to convince me that he should take the Nazarite vow. We're in a little bit of a family struggle, a battle over the hair length. He's currently winning, I'll just say. Okay, let me explain this one. In the Old Testament, long hair on a man was considered to be a sign of weakness. And so a Nazarite would grow his hair long as a way of saying, I am weak, but God is strong. It's not my strength, it's his strength, and I want everyone to know it. That's vow number two, no haircuts. And then there's vow number three, number six, six. He must not go near a dead body. Again, kind of a random rule, but... The Nazarite vow to not go near a dead body was a way of saying, I am focused as a Nazarite on the life-giving power of God. 
And so by staying away from, from dead bodies, the statement was, I'll have nothing to do with dying, decaying, death-causing things in this world. As a Nazarite, I am all about life in the Lord. So that's the Nazarite vow, three things. No wine, no haircuts, no dead bodies. This is Samson's vow. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Are we noticing a little entitlement in Samson already? Yes. And actually, I want to point something out here. The first three words out of Samson's mouth in this story, the first three words that he speaks actually turn out to be tragically the defining words of his life. Let me read them again for you. I have seen. I have seen it and now I want it. I have seen it and now I must have it. Friends, what we learn about Samson is that he has amazing gifts and giftedness will give you, get you lots of things in this world. If you're gifted, you'll have access to a lot. But Samson does not have the discipline. He doesn't have the self-control. He lacks the character to say no to the temptations that his giftedness will bring his way. I have seen it and I want it. Let me, let me ask us a pointed question here today. Because the Samson story is actually for you and me. Are you, are we developing the character to resist the temptations that will entice us in this world? Are you developing the character to resist the temptations that will certainly at some point come your way in this world? Are you asking God to grow you in patience and humility and discipline and faithfulness and self-control? And specifically, are you growing in these areas in the small everyday patterns of your life? Like, how's your patience around the house? How's your patience at the office? Are you able to apologize or give credit to others when needed? Do you do this regularly and easily and more and more easily as God empowers you? Are you disciplined in prayer? Are you faithful in serving, in giving? Do you have control? This one, this one will speak right to you especially during COVID, do you have control over your moods and appetites or do they control you? You see, Jesus says, if you are faithful in the little things, then what? Then you will be faithful in the big things. He uses the little moments of life to build the character in us so that when the big moments come, the character is there for us to rely on. The little moments prepare us for the big moments. And Samson's failure to tell himself no, his lack of character to resist temptation will ultimately lead to his destruction. And as the story continues, we read that Samson goes down to Timnah to visit this girl. And on his way down to visit this girl that he's seen, that he must have, he's attacked by a lion. Judges 14, he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I love how that says that, as if like tearing a young goat would be so easy. 
Has anyone ever torn a young, I mean, like, can you imagine, like, here, Doug, here's a young goat for you, and you just, like, I, it's not even budging, right? But for Samson, like, he just blunk, right? And the lion was just as easy. That's what we're being told. Like, even something that most of us couldn't do, he does that easily and even more. Verse 8, sometime later, when he went back to marry her, this girl from, uh, this Philistine woman, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands as he ate, and, and he ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they ate it too. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Do you notice his secrecy here? He's not telling his parents the whole truth. He's hiding some things in his life. Friends, are there things in your life that you're hiding? Are there little things that you're not being forthcoming about, not honest about? Are there things in your life right now that your spouse doesn't know, and they should, that your colleagues don't know, that your friends don't know? Because hiding, hiding is what we do when deep down we know that we're wrong. We don't tell the whole truth because we know that if we did, there would be consequences. And Samson is hiding because he has broken one of his vows. He saw the honey. He wanted it. He didn't have the character to say no, even though it's in the carcass of a dead animal. And actually, it's even worse than that because when we back up in the story, we learn where Samson is when he encounters said lion. It says in the middle of verse 5, as they, this is Samson and some, his crew, uh, approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. Why is Samson in a vineyard? I mean, isn't he supposed to stay away from that stuff completely? From vineyards and you know, grapes and raisins and such? Doesn't his vow say, don't even go near it? Now, I want to pause right here and just maybe make an observation quickly. Because maybe as you read this story, you're tempted to think, why is this such a big deal? Right? I mean, does God really care that much? I mean, it's honey. It's good honey. It was there. I mean, it's just a vineyard. He's just sort of passing through. Is the Lord really that, that concerned about these small little things? Well, he is. And here's why. Because God knows how sin works. It lures you in slowly, doesn't it? It convinces you this is no big deal. It doesn't matter that much. It's so insignificant. It, does, it doesn't even count. I mean, it's just, it's just one click. It's just a website. They're just words. Everybody says stuff about other people. Everybody gossips and slanders. One little lie, that won't hurt. Everybody cheats on tests and copies homework or fudges the numbers on their taxes. It's not that big of a deal. You know, it wasn't that racist of a joke. I mean, I was just being friendly with him or friendly with her, right? You see, it all starts so small. And then, as sin always does, it grows. You see, later in the story, we learn about Samson engaging in a wild drinking party. And so now, what started as just walking through a vineyard has grown. And Samson is now down, not just one of his vows, but two Two of his three vows have fallen, and he only has one vow left. And here's the good news. Samson holds on to that one vow for a really long time. Judges chapter 15, it says this. 
In verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power. The spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in empowered him. You see, hear this, friends. Listen to this. Even with his failures, even with his shortcomings, even with just one vow left in his pocket, God is still using Samson to do some amazing things. In one scene, check this out, Samson defeats a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. That's like the famous Samson story. Remember this? But think about it for a second. A thousand to one. This guy is like Bruce Lee and Dwayne the Rock Johnson rolled into one dude. He is the man. In verse 20 it says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. For 20 years. See, this was a stretch where Samson wasn't just doing what felt good to him in the moment. He was following the lead of the Lord. He was allowing God to work through him and have control of his gifts. And he was hanging on to his final vow. Like Pastor Luke Emery, he still had his long hair. Hang in there, Luke. Your buddy abandoned you, but you, you've got it. You're still there. You and Samson, buddy. Thanks for being in the second row, third row for this joke for me. I didn't even know you were going to be here, but I appreciate you. Um, I love Pastor Luke. Okay. But... So Samson's doing good, right? He's hanging in there. He's fighting for God. 20 years. One day, this is chapter 16, verse 1. One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. Told you, like, the hero? Is this this our hero? He went in to spend the night with her. You see, what we're being told here is Samson is drifting back to his old habits again. For 20 years, he's following God and fulfilling his calling. But now he's getting off the path a little bit. He's starting to veer away. Verse 4. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, in the Bible, we've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. Names are a big deal. The Bible chooses names really specifically to help tell the story, to sort of give it some depth, to undergird the plot. And the name Sorek means violence. And the name Delilah means weak. You see, Samson is now about to experience the violence that sin can do in your life when your character is too weak to resist it. And maybe you've heard this part of the story, but here's how it goes. Over and over and over again, Delilah tries to convince Samson to tell her the secret of his great strength. And Samson, for a while, resists her. But one day, he can resist no longer, and he finally gives in. Friends, hear me on this. If you hang around temptation long enough, eventually, it will beat you. It will suck you in. If you hang around temptation long enough, eventually, It will suck you in. Write this down. No one's taking notes today, but in your mind, write this down. You can remember it. Temptation is tempting. Duh. Right? Sin is seductive. Lust is alluring. Depravity is desirable. The sins of the world that the enemy wants to use to trip you up are sins that feel really good, that look really wonderful. 
and are enticing. And if you hang around them long enough, at some point, your willpower will fail and you will give in. So don't mess with it. Don't mess around with sin. Let me ask you this. Is there some place in your life where you're dabbling with sin and it's only a matter of time before it bites you? Is there some place in your life right now where you're just messing around, you're walking close to the line, where you're, just, you're kind of toying with something, and you know deep in your mind, in your heart, the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you, get away, run, flee from this thing, and yet you're, you're enjoying just being right on the line, and you're not really feeling like it's doing any harm, and there are no consequences, and then one day, it's going to get you. Are you dabbling with sin in your life in a way that will ultimately be destructive. You see, part of the walking with godly character in this world is just simply this. Know yourself. Understand your weaknesses. Understand your personal temptations. Understand the specific sins that are alluring and enticing to you and start creating some barriers, some safeguards, some distance between yourself and those temptations. Samson doesn't do this. This is Judges 16, 15. It says, Then Delilah said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? And I imagine she's teary. This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Verse 16. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Now I'm so tempted right now to make some comments about verse 16. But because this is a sermon on character, I'm going to exercise self-preservation, I mean self-discipline, and move on. Verse 17, so he told her everything. There's always some people in your life, right? There's people in your life who will say, get away from that sin, it's it's going to get you. There's other people in your life who are saying like, come on, it's not going to be that bad. I'm doing it, it's going to be great. And we think this is like, We think this happens only in middle school. It happens in office buildings and families and friendships. Probably in nursing homes. I haven't spent a lot of time in nursing homes, but I imagine there too, right? So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Now, friends, let me pause here and say something really significant. Most people believe that Samson's strength was in his hair. That's not the point of the story. Samson's strength was never in his hair. Samson's strength was in his vow. His strength was in his commitment and connection to the Lord. That's where his strength was. Well, Delilah now, she knows, she's a Philistine, she's in cahoots with the enemy, and now she knows Samson's secret, and so she coaxes him to sleep, and then what does she do? She shaves his head, and Samson's final vow has now been broken, and his supernatural strength leaves him, and the Philistines come, and Samson rises to fight, as he's done so many times, and then we read one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. But Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. And when you read this story, that that moment can feel sort of abrupt. Like he had it, he had the strength, he had the power, he had God, and then suddenly he didn't. 
But I think the truth of what's happened here is more like this. Samson had been drifting away from the Lord for a really long time. It had happened so subtly in his life that he didn't even notice it. He got so accustomed to just relying on his own strength and his own gifts and not walking with God that one day he just gets up and he doesn't even realize that his relationship with the Lord is gone. It's kaputs. It's non-existent. Friends, be so, here, listen, be so, so careful of small, subtle drifts away from God in your life. Preaching to the choir now, right? Just those little shifts. If there's anything that's sort of moving you away, shifting you away from Jesus, friends, even in just the slightest bit, do whatever you need to do to remove that distraction and get back in alignment with him because our drift away from the Lord happens subtly and slowly, but it is significant. It happened to Samson, and now the Philistines capture him. And what do they do? They, they jab out his eyes, which is sort of ironic, given that these are the organs that he saw with, he sees and wants. But Samson's story doesn't end there. At the end of his life, he's a prisoner He's a prisoner of the Philistines, the very people he's battled for years and decades. And it says this in chapter 16, verse 22. He's been a prisoner. The Philistines have him. They've jabbed out his eyes. They've mocked him. He's like humiliated. He's done. His life is over. But it says, the hair on his head began to grow again. This is the Bible's way of saying See, the Bible's so creative, a good storyteller, right? I mean, the scriptures are amazing when you really read them. This is the Bible's way of saying Sanson's hair began to grow again. No, no, no. His commitment and connection to God began to grow again. And at the end of this story, the, Philist the Philistines are sacrificing in the temple to one of their gods, Dagon. And Samson's there, and he's standing by the two pillars that hold up the temple, and Samson prays. No eyes, chained to these pillars. And he says, he looks up to heaven and he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh, God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus Samson killed many more when he died than when he lived. Now, for us, this sounds like a little bit of a brutal story, doesn't it? This sounds a little intense kind of maybe vulgar or immoral, and yet it is written very carefully to be a story of redemption. This is a redemption story. This is Samson, even after years of failing, coming back to God. And the message, friends, for us is such a powerful one, and it's one that maybe you need to hear today. At some point, you, like Samson, will fail at some point in your life, you will dabble with sin and cross the line. At some point in your life, you will disappoint God and break a vow and make a decision that invites sin into your life. And when you do, remember this. God will never give up on you. 
He will never give up on you. With him, there is always a second chance. And so when you fail, when you fall, when you blow it, do not delay. Turn around. Go running back to him because we serve a God of amazing grace, a God who always will forgive you and who will never stop loving you, and a God who longs to undergird your life with the character that comes from being connected to him. So don't let sin win. Don't let failure have the final word. Get reconnected to your heavenly Father. You see, sometimes, friends, our failures, our sins, the condemnation that the enemy wants to thrust on us, those are the loudest voices in our lives. And we start to think, maybe it's over for me. Maybe I can never do it. Maybe I've already blown my chance with God. I'm just going to sort of put my head down and sort of walk forward in life. And God says, no, no. That's not the gospel. That's not who I am. That's not what I want for you, my son, my daughter. And all of us need to be reminded of that. You see, Jesus knew that his followers would be tempted to drift away, be tempted to rely on their own strength, be tempted to dabble in sin and then feel condemned for it. And so before he goes to the cross, he sits with them at a meal and he says, hey, anytime you come together, When you gather in my name to worship me, do this, do this thing, eat this meal, take some bread and some wine, and when you eat and drink, use it as a reminder of what I did for you. Just like put a central in your thinking that I died for you, that that I've forgiven all your sins, that the barrier between you and the Heavenly Father, no matter what you did or have done or will do, has been broken down and torn apart. See, this meal is a reminder, again, of God's power, not my power, his power. Not my strength, his strength. And it takes his strength to restore me to him. That's what this meal is about. That's why we're going to share it together today. We're going to remember this relationship with God that we have been offered, not because of our gifts or strengths or good deeds, but because of his amazing grace. And so today, we're going to take the elements, we're going to take the bread, and take the cup, and maybe as we do, in your mind, just in the privacy of your own heart, you just need to talk to your Heavenly Father, and you just need to say, Lord, I've been drifting. I've been drifting. Our relationship isn't what it was. I've not been connected to you this week. I've been connected to the internet, I've been connected to cable TV, I've been connected to some struggles at work or in my life or at home, or I've been connected to doctor's reports. But I need to be reconnected to you, be the loudest voice in my life. Or maybe today there's a sin that you've been dabbling with. Maybe you're just in a little bit, maybe you're in real deep. And today, this morning is the moment of repentance, the morning of just declaring, no, I don't want that, God. I don't want that path. I don't want that life. I want the life of abundance that you long for me to have. And maybe this morning is your chance to say, Jesus, help me turn this around. I need you. I want to follow you again. Maybe today it's just about saying, Life's been easy and good, and I've just kind of been on cruise control, and I'm living off my own gifts and my own strengths and my earthly securities. And I don't want to do that, Lord. I want to trust in you. So whatever it is for you today, 
Let this meal be a moment where you're reminded that you have power to turn and walk with God. Not your power, his power. The power of death and resurrection, the power that defeated the grave is available to you and me. Let's take the body of Christ together. Take a knee. One of the things I love about what Jesus said when he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new what? Covenant. You know what a covenant it is? It's a relationship. It's not a new ticket to heaven. It's not a new list of rules to follow. It's a new relationship. You can have a restored, new, connected, deep, intimate relationship with the Lord of the universe. That's what this cup represents. Because of Jesus' blood that was shed for you, you can be connected to God. And it's just a reminder of that. This is a declaration. Yes, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing, nothing in this world. And I need to hear that again. Maybe you need to hear that again today. Let's declare it together. The blood of Christ shed for you and me. Before we worship, just take a minute. I'm just going to let it be quiet for a second. Think for a minute about what God wants you to hear today, maybe what you need to say to him. Just think about some of those questions that the story of Samson is asking us to ask. Just take a minute and pray, and then I'll pray, and then Austin and the team will lead us in a time of worship. Father, thank you for hearing us today. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace, for your mercies, for your love. Lord, I I just confess for me that in this last season, the worries of life have been big. And I think of the scripture that says, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth will come in and choke the word. We'll just kind of stranglehold our relationship, God, I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. Others in this room, Father, have prayed about various things. I'm asking the Holy Spirit right now that you would move in behind this message, push the evil one's voice aside, and speak love and assurance and encouragement and challenge and hope and healing into each one in this place. We love you, Lord. We need you. We surrender to you. We ask that you would continue and just the little ways of life to build your character deep into our hearts and into our minds. We ask all these wonderful things in Jesus' name. Amen.